0: Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, February 8th, 2024. We're the only podcast that's separating the fact from the narrative
1: spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. Netanyahu rejects Hamas's proposed ceasefire. An election eve blast kills more than 20 in Pakistan. House Republicans fail to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. Papua rebels agree to release
0: a kidnapped
1: New Zealand pilot. Russian missiles target Kyiv. The U.N. requests $4.1 billion for Sudan. The mother of a Michigan shooter is found guilty of manslaughter. A helicopter carrying five Marines is found crashed. Missing bolts are found to have caused Alaska Airlines' mid-air door blowout and AI is used to decode
0: an ancient text.
1: Netanyahu rejects Hamas's counteroffer. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, Jerusalem Post, The Guardian, and MSN. On Wednesday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying that, quote, total victory could be months away, rejected a counteroffer forwarded by Hamas regarding last week's proposal that would see Israeli hostages exchanged for an extended ceasefire in Gaza. Negotiations are expected to resume in Cairo on Thursday. Hamas's counterproposal, a draft of which was seen by Reuters, called for a three-stage ceasefire over 135 days that included all hostages released the withdrawal of Israeli forces from Gaza, and the enclave's reconstruction. The proposal also called for the release of around 1,500 Palestinian prisoners and increased humanitarian aid into Gaza. Some Israeli officials indicated that Hamas's proposal would be difficult to agree to because it stipulates that Israeli forces must withdraw from Gaza. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken held meetings with Israeli officials Wednesday after visits to Qatar and Egypt, which have been mediating between Israel and Hamas. Amid negotiations, Israeli forces have moved closer toward Rafah on the Egyptian border, which is now housing around half of Gaza's 2.3 million population, due to the swell of displaced Palestinians from the north and center of the strip. Israel has indicated its forces won't push into Rafah without Egyptian approval. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 27,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation. The official Israeli death toll on October 7th stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip.
0: Eric, thank you for the facts on our first story. Today, I'm going to start our first round of narrative spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by CNN. Israel risks pushing Palestinians into Hamas's hands if it does not work to ensure the safety of civilians and give greater consideration to Hamas's ceasefire offers. Israel's war with Hamas is surely just, giving the atrocities the group committed during its October 7th attack. But Israel must take into account the innocent civilians in Gaza who are trapped between Israel's military
1: machine and Hamas's terrorist fighters. And the pro-Israel narrative comes from Jerusalem Post. Israel must eliminate Hamas and restore deterrence with Iran and its proxy Hezbollah by eliminating military capabilities and infrastructure. And it can't stop now. Israel has been forced to use blunt tools to rout Hamas forces because they're deeply dug into Gaza's civil infrastructure. But at the same time, despite what the international community may say, Israel has worked to deliver aid to Gaza and find a way to end the war.
0: There's also a pro-Palestine narrative, and that's written by Middle East Eye. Israel is waging war, not just against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people as a whole, making all of Gaza unsafe and, in large part, uninhabitable. Over one million Palestinians are living in cold and damp tent camps in Rafah, and an Israeli assault on the city would be disastrous. Israel must get serious about a ceasefire, and if it won't,
1: the U.S., Israel's biggest ally, must exert more pressure to end the war. Metaculus has a nerd narrative for this story. They're saying that there's a 3% chance that a shared power arrangement will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1, 2025.
0: Explosions near candidates' offices in Pakistan have killed dozens. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Don.com, The Times of India, and Forbes. Coming a day before Pakistan's elections, two explosions went off Wednesday in the Balochistan province near the offices of a candidate in the Pishin district, killing 14 people, and also at the office of the Jumayat Ulima Islam, or the JUI party, reportedly killing 12 and wounding at least 25. Deputy Commissioner of the Pishin district, Jumadad Mandakhail, said the blast there, which went off outside the office of independent candidate Ashfandia Kakar, came from explosive material being planted in a motorcycle parked in the area. Kakar, who wasn't present at the office when the explosions happened, said eight of our workers were martyred. It's unknown who was behind the bombings, though the Pakistani Taliban, as well as Balochistan separatists, have both recently carried out attacks. The JUI party, which is one of the hardline Islamic parties in the election, Has had close ties to the Afghan Taliban and operates several traditional Islamic schools. Last year, the party was targeted by an Islamic State group suicide bomber, resulting in the deaths of 45 people. The attacks occurred after candidates held their final campaign events, after which the country underwent a quiet period mandated by election regulations on the day before an election. It's also part of a recent surge in the attacks as well as rising tensions regarding the arrest of former Prime Minister and current candidate Imran Khan. The recent violence has included nine grenade attacks against election offices in Makran and Kuwaita yesterday. Last week, a firefight resulted in the deaths of 24 terrorists in Balochistan. An independent candidate was shot dead in the Bajur district Ten more bomb attacks were launched in the Balochistan, killing one man, and ten officers were killed during an attack on a police station in the khybir Pakhtunkhwa
1: province. Adam, thank you for presenting those facts. We have a round of spins that begins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Radio Free Europe. Current local government reports have indicated that the Islamic State group was responsible for the motorcycle bombing, which is unsurprising given the terror group's recent attacks alongside those from Balochistan separatists and the Pakistani Taliban. The Pakistanis are still set to go to the polls. The government has rightly closed the borders to both Afghanistan and Iran to strengthen security ahead of the election. These terrorists must face a swift response for the carnage they caused in recent weeks. It's going to be countered with the establishment critical narrative provided
0: by Intercept. The recent turmoil in Pakistan must be scrutinized heavily. Regarding terrorist attacks, multiple members of Imran Khan's PTI party have been the targets of these attacks, despite the groups alleged to have committed them having no history of targeting the PTI. Secondly, the military-run election commissions have conveniently announced political issues with the voting database ahead of the election. All of this, on top of the obvious arrest of the most popular prime minister candidate, shows the government is doing everything it can to keep Khan
1: out of the office. The nerds at Metaculus say there's a 21% chance of civil war in Pakistan before 2036. The U.S. House votes against impeaching Mayorkas. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today. Fox News, New York Times, Forbes, Independent, and Time. The U.S. House on Tuesday voted 214 to 216 against a Republican-led effort to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over his handling of the southern border, as a handful of Republicans joined with all the Democrats. The four Republicans who voted against the proposal were Representatives Tom McClintock, Republican of California, Ken Buck, Republican of Colorado, Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin, and Blake Moore, Republican of Utah who voted no as a procedural move so that the GOP could bring the resolution back to the floor at a future date. Democrats were able to defeat the measure in part because Representative Al Green, Democrat of Texas, made a surprise appearance in hospital garb to vote against it after having abdominal surgery. The vote was on two articles of impeachment, which were introduced last month by House Homeland Security Committee Chair, Mark Green, Republican of Tennessee, accusing Mayorkas of a systemic refusal to comply with immigration law and a breach of public trust. Several GOP legislators vowed to bring their effort to impeach a cabinet official for the first time since 1876, back next week, for a vote. However, even if it passes the House, The Democratic majority Senate is unlikely to convict Mayorkas. This vote comes as many Republicans, including House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, have vowed to defeat a bipartisan border security bill being negotiated in the Senate. Johnson previously promised his party, Mayorkas, would be impeached. Eric, thank you for the facts. And as you can imagine, with a politically motivated story like that, we're going to get some politically
0: motivated spins, starting off with a Democratic narrative provided by Mother Jones. Democrats and legal experts tried to warn the Republicans that this political stunt would fail, but they still went forward with their baseless vote. Republicans claim they want to secure the border, but they're intent on removing the man in charge of doing so and have attacked him since he first took office. Now House Republicans
1: must adjust to the humiliating defeat they've brought on themselves. We follow that with a Republican narrative coming from Daily Caller. Were it not for a few turncoats, this Republican effort to hold Mayorkas responsible for his criminal indifference to the crisis at the border would have passed. Mayorkas has failed bureaucratically, and he must be removed from office. In the near future, all Republicans will be available to vote, and despite the efforts of Democrats and a couple of unfortunate GOP outliers, this measure will pass and Mayorkas will be held to account. And the nerds have an opinion. They think that there's a 50 percent chance that the rate of
0: immigration enforcement in the U.S. in 2024 as a percentage of removals to encounters will be at least 6.2 percent. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Papua rebels might release kidnapped New Zealand pilot. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, First Post, U.S. News and World Report guardian, and independent. The West Papua National Liberation Army, or the TPNPB, Wednesday ordered its armed faction to release a New Zealand pilot it took hostage a year ago in a remote and mountainous area of Unduga in Indonesia's Papua province. The kidnapped pilot Philip Mertens was flying a small aircraft for Susi Air, providing, quote, vital air links and supplies to remote communities when he was abducted by armed rebels on February 7, 2023, reportedly as a bargaining chip to advocate for Papua's independence. Though the TPMPB hasn't disclosed the details of Merton's release, the chief of the group's general staff said that the pilot will be returned to his family to, quote, protect humanity and human rights. However, the Indonesian police in the Papua province claims the authorities haven't been informed about TPMPB's decision to free Mertens, adding, we suspect they raised the issue to seek attention. This news came after New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Foreign Affairs, Winston Peters, Monday appealed for Mertens' independent release, quote, without harm, arguing his continued detention served the interests of no one pro-independence fighters have been conducting deadly attacks in the resource-rich western half of the island of Papua, formerly a Dutch colony, since it was controversially brought under Indonesian control in a vote overseen by the UN in 1969.
1: Adam, thank you for the facts. The first spin is Narrative A coming from Stuff. Papua's demand for recognition of independence in exchange for a hostage is a desperate attempt to attract international attention toward the West-Papuan crisis. Instead of using the pilot as a pawn for high-level political negotiations, the rebels should call for the UN to mediate the conflict. There's a Narrative
0: B. It's provided by Atlas News. This incident has renewed attention to one of the world's least known and longest-running conflicts— which is why the TPMPB shouldn't lose its bargaining position. It should only free Mertens if Indonesia allows Papua to become a sovereign country after more than six decades.
1: The nerds from Attaculous say there's a 5% chance that Indonesia will experience a civil war before 2036. Russian missiles have targeted Kiev and other Ukrainian regions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukraine's Kepravda and Form. As the Russia-Ukraine war approaches its third year, a series of Russian drones and missiles again targeted Kyiv and other Ukrainian regions on Wednesday. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky described it as, quote, another massive Russian air attack against our country. He added that six regions came under enemy fire but that the aftermath is now being addressed by, quote, all of our services. Ukraine's Air Force said that Russia launched a combined total of 64 weapons toward the country, comprising of 44 missiles and 20 drones. Of these, it reported that 29 missiles and 15 drones were shot down by missile defenses. Local officials said that at least four civilians were killed and 38 more were injured in Kyiv. Zelensky added, quote, some communication lines, including high-voltage cables, have been damaged in the capital. Meanwhile, in southern Mykolaiv, the city's mayor said 12 people were reported injured, one of whom later died in a hospital. He added that 40 houses were destroyed and that a gas pipeline running through the city was damaged. Ukraine's Prime Minister Denis Shmal said that Russian strikes had once again targeted energy infrastructure. He said, power engineers are already working to restore power supply. At the same time, the power grid remains stable and no power outages are planned. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. The pro-Ukraine narrative spin for this story is brought to
0: us by Ukraine Forum. As it has done throughout the war, Russia is continuing to deliberately target Ukraine's civilian population, as well as the energy
1: infrastructure they rely on. Russian terrorists must be stopped. TASS follows that with a pro russian narrative. Russia has repeatedly made clear that it does not target civilians. All strikes are directed at military targets, including military warehouses, fuel depots, and training facilities. The Metaculous Prediction
0: community believes that there's a 15% chance that Russia will have significantly expanded its controlled territory in Ukraine by January 1st of 2026. The UN requests $4.1 billion in aid for Sudan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by First Post, Sudan Tribune, Associated Press, Al Jazeera, Barons, and Vatican News. The UN on Wednesday appealed for $4.1 billion in aid to Sudan, where a civil war has affected 25 million people, more than half of the population. Ten months of conflict between the Sudanese Army and the Paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF, has severely damaged the infrastructure, leaving some 18 million people hungry. The so-called generosity of donors is key, said Martin Griffiths, UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator. He added less than half of last year's funding request was fulfilled. UN officials said that the world must turn its focus toward war-torn places like Sudan, which, despite witnessing 12,000 deaths and 10.7 million people displaced, gets overshadowed by the conflicts in Ukraine and the Middle East. UN data show that over 1.5 million Sudanese refugees have crossed into neighboring countries like the Central African Republic, Chad, Egypt, Ethiopia, and South Sudan. Of the requested funding, $1.4 billion will be aimed at helping 2.7 million people in five neighboring countries. Griffiths said Sudan's warring factors, led by Army Chief Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and his former deputy Mohammed Hamdan Daglo, have agreed to talk about enabling aid delivery. Following the U.S. and Saudi Arabia-sponsored Jeddah Conference, the UN will mediate the next talks war erupted on April 5th of 2023 between Al-Burhan and Daglo, both of whom have previously allied in October of 2021 to carry out a
1: coup in the country. Adam, thanks for those facts. The first spin is an establishment critical narrative. It comes from The Guardian. Despite sanctions being implemented on the RSF by countries as rich and powerful as the U.S., The West has still treated the Sudanese people as insignificant compared to the attention focused on other countries, such as Ukraine. If genocide in Sudan is truly occurring, as the U.S. Secretary of State has claimed, why haven't these leaders been pushing the public to support giving the Sudanese just as much humanitarian aid as it has for Eastern Europe?
0: That's going to be counted with the pro-establishment narrative provided by UN.org. The UN and the international organizations have been in the forefront of Sudan's humanitarian mission since the violence began. Just as Sudan began its historic transition to civilian rule in 2019, these opposing factions have chosen to throw their communities into a life of suffering and fear. A significant portion of the local population has been receiving the aid they need, but local security issues and political pushback have hindered the U.N. from reaching everyone. Despite this, the U.N. system will continue calling for vital and
1: additional assistance from the global community. Once again, the nerds from Metaculus have a nerd narrative saying there's a 50% chance that the rate of deaths per 100,000 people from global conflict will be at least 1.6 in 2032. So only a sixth of a person will have to really worry about anything. Yeah, so... What would you do if you just had uh, 40% of your body left?
0: If I just left? had 40% of my body left, um, I'd, I'd eat more salad, probably.
1: Mother of a Michigan school shooter found guilty of manslaughter. And the facts are agreed upon by NBC, BBC News, ABC News, and Detroit Free Press. Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of a Michigan teenager who shot and killed four classmates at Oxford High School, was found guilty on Monday of involuntary manslaughter in connection with her son Ethan's shooting. Crumbly is the first U.S. parent to be convicted over a child's mass shooting. Prosecutors claim she ignored clear warning signs from Ethan and acted criminally negligent by allowing him to have a gun at 15 years old. Ethan, now 17, is serving a lifetime sentence for his November 30, 2021 massacre. The jury deliberated the verdict for 11 hours over two days and decided to charge Crumbly with all four counts of manslaughter for each victim her son killed. Jennifer will face sentencing on April 9 and could receive up to 15 years in prison. Her husband, James, has a separate trial slated for next month. The jury person said the verdict wasn't initially unanimous, saying that evidence such as Crumbly's text messages and her son's notebook writing played a huge part in the decision. He added that Crumbly was the last person to possess the gun before her son's shooting spree and attributed the responsibility of securing the weapon to her. Parents of the victims offered their testimonies during the trial in addition to school officials, who said that they summoned the Crumleys hours before the shooting because of their son's violent drawing. However, the parents refused to take Ethan home from school. Jennifer and James have been in prison for the last two years since they could not post the $500,000 bond while awaiting their trials. Thanks, Eric. The spins are going to begin with a narrative A provided by the New York Times.
0: The jury made the morally and legally correct decision to hold Jennifer Crumbly criminally responsible for her son's shooting, sending a message that parents must be diligent in monitoring their children's behavior. While Crumbly might not be a cold-blooded murderer herself, she should have been able to tell that her son was not in a secure mental state, yet she opted to buy him a gun instead of getting him the help he needed.
1: Thanks, Adam. Narrative B comes from Boston University. While some gun violence activists may celebrate Jennifer Crumbly's guilty verdict, the jury's decision could have a chilling effect on parents and gun ownership going forward. Even if Crumbly sets a new standard for criminal negligence related to a child's mass shooting, her conviction may set a new legal liability for parents. This could disproportionately impact lower-income families while not addressing the root causes of gun violence. Eric, there's a nerd narrative that says there's a 50% chance that there will be at least
0: 1.4 small firearms per capita in the U.S. by 2029, and that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. A search is underway for five Marines after a helicopter crash. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, New York Post, and Fox Weather. A missing helicopter carrying five U.S. Marines has been located in Southern California. First responders are continuing to search for the crew. Ground and air crews found the CH-53E Superstallion helicopter in Pine Valley, California, a mountainous community east of San Diego, around 9 a.m. local time on Wednesday. The helicopter departed from Cheech Air Force Base in Nevada and was on its way to Marine Corps Air Station Miramar near San Diego on Tuesday night when it reported overdue. The five missing Marines belonged to the Marine Heavy Helicopter Squadron 361, Marine Aircraft Group 16, 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing. Search and rescue efforts are a multi-agency effort, including the U.S. Forestry Division, the San Diego County Sheriff's Department, and the U.S. Border Patrol Search, Trauma, and Rescue Unit. Heavy precipitation from an ongoing atmospheric river has complicated rescue efforts and limited the usage of air crews. Heavy snowfall in the mountains have also complicated the rescue response. It is not yet known if the weather played a role in the missing aircraft.
1: Those were the facts, and the round of spins will begin with an establishment critical narrative coming from responsible statecraft. Though the fate of this particular missing aircraft is still unknown, deadly military aircraft crashes are anything but rare. The U.S. military's trend of focusing more on shiny new emerging technologies and outsourcing instead of pilot training and safety is directly to blame for this epidemic of accidents. Investing more resources into pilot training and maintenance would be a good start. There's a
0: pro-establishment narrative provided by WPDE. Even outside of war, military operations are inherently risky. While it is unfortunate that some people are injured or die in military operations, mishaps are not entirely unexpected in this risky business. Despite this, the number of deaths due to mishaps is trending downward, and the U.S. military is working to bring the number of casualties from accidents down to zero by improving training
1: resources for troops. All right, let's find out what the nerds from Metaculus have to say for this story. They say there's a 27% chance that U.S. non overseas contingency operations military deaths will exceed 3,000 in any calendar year before and including 2031.
0: That was very convoluted. I would expect something like, there's a 60% chance that the helicopter was struck
1: by lightning. Well, why don't you interpret it as that, and then we'll both be happy.
0: Okay, there's 27% chance that it got struck by a tidal wave, it seems.
1: Like. Wait a minute, didn't you mention the color of the chopper, though, in your interpretation? I thought you said it was a yellow chopper.
0: That's uh, There's a 13% chance that it was struck by a yellow submarine.
1: According to a recent report, missing bolts caused the Alaska Airlines mid-air door blowout. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, New York Times, NTSB, The Hill, CNBC, and Independent. Four bolts that helped secure the door plug of a Boeing 737 MAX 9 were missing when an Alaska Airlines flight blew out mid-air last month, the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, said on Tuesday. In its 19-page preliminary report, the NTSB said the faulty door plug was opened to repair damaged rivets on the plane's fuselage at Boeing's factory in September 2023. According to the NTSB, Boeing's record shows the door plug and its associated bolts had been removed in order to replace the damaged rivets. However, when it was reinstalled, a photo taken by Boeing staff revealed that three of the four bolts on the door plug were missing. The fourth bolt couldn't be seen in the photo as it had been covered by insulation. The NTSB determined that nothing could prevent Alaska Airlines' door plug from moving upward and, quote, off the stop pads mid flight without the bolts. Following the report's findings, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun took responsibility for the incident and promised to, quote, do better, adding that, quote, an event like this must not happen on an airplane that leaves our factory.
0: That should be your your factory's uh,
1: motto. An event like this must not happen on an airplane that leaves our factory. Get that thing gold-plated. Hang it right there above the door. Thanks, Eric.
0: We've got a few spins, starting with the pro establishment provided by Boeing. Boeing has taken full responsibility for the midair emergency and continues to work closely with the NTSB and the Federal Aviation Authority to implement measures to improve safety and quality. Several new checks and quality control inspections have already been implemented to ensure this type of fault doesn't
1: occur again. Follow that with the establishment critical narrative coming from The Guardian. It's completely unthinkable that these planes can still fly, given the types of issues being reported. As an analogy, if you had a car that had a piece fly off while driving, prompting you to take it to a mechanic, and the mechanic says, here you go, the car is fixed, We found other problems, but you can still take it out on the road. You'd be scratching your head. Eric, the nerds are on a roll again today. They've got a narrative that says there's a 16%
0: chance that there will be a commercial service to travel between London and New York in under three hours before 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Our final story today is about how AI has been used to decode an ancient Roman scroll. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The Weather Channel, Guardian, and Washington Post. Three tech students have built an artificial intelligence model to virtually decipher a 2,000-year-old ancient scroll thought to have been owned by Julius Caesar's father-in-law before it was burnt during the Mount Vesuvius volcanic eruption in 71 A.D. The discovery was part of the University of Kentucky Professor Brent Seal's Vesuvius Challenge which offered a $1 million prize to anyone who could figure out how to decipher the carbonized text. Among other cities, Mount Vesuvius's eruption destroyed the city of Herculaneum, home to the Villa of Papyra Library, which housed over 1,800 papyrus scrolls. While the heat and carbon from the eruption did preserve the scrolls, years of decay left them illegible. The students' AI model, however, was able to distinguish between papyrus and ink as well as translate faint lettering. The scrolls were first discovered in the 18th century, but the carbonized material left them so fragile that they would crumble when touched by researchers. After Seals was able to virtually unwrap it, the students, working quote 20-something hours a day, used an algorithm to automatically unravel CT, or computed tomography, scanned images, and translate more than 2,000 Greek letters. The 2,000 letters so far translated, which account for only 5% of the text, are believed to have been written by the philosopher Philodemus. In them, he discussed food, music, and the sources of pleasure. Professor Seals and a team of researchers in 2002 had created an X-ray-like computer program to see inside unopened documents using it to read unopened Hebrew books. However, when he visited France to observe the Herculaneum scrolls in 2009, he found that he couldn't analyze the charcoal documents the same way he had for ones made with metal. The goal of the researchers this year is to read the rest of the scroll and begin the process of analyzing other artifacts already excavated. The new AI technology could possibly see through the papyrus wrapped around Egyptian mummies, discovering items such as tax receipts, property deeds, and laundry lists.
1: Adam, thank you for the facts. The first spin is Narrative A, coming from Medium.com. Following centuries of failed efforts to physically unravel these texts, followed by decades of technological advancements that could only partially unseal artifacts, The new AI technology has revolutionized the field of archaeology. As these algorithms continue to unlock previously unopenable documents, researchers will be able to study philosophers and their yet unknown influence on phenomena ranging from religion to the classics. The New York Times is going to follow that with the Narrative B. While AI has been used to
0: uncover groundbreaking historical discoveries, it can also be used to falsify the past, From newspapers to letters to government records, long before the invention of AI, regimes like the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany rewrote the past to shape the future. Now imagine what could be done with AI. Companies at the forefront of this technology need to work fast to mark all historical records and
1: make them AI-proof before
0: they can be altered.
1: The nerds from Itaculus say there's a four percent chance that the US will restrict will restrict deep fake technology use to approved applications before twenty twenty five. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, February 8th, 2024.
0: Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team that extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
1: Find out more at Verity.News and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on The Verity Podcast.